The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. So there was us thinking, who will we get for the Culture Club for this week? And then the idea came to us, you know, we've got Anton Savage back with us on the programme recently and he's never done a Culture Club. And then we had the sort of conversation. But sure, is he only interested in fast cars? Does he read books and does he watch television and does he listen to music? Of course he does. Of course you do, Anton, isn't it? It's Ah, not just fast cars for you, is it? Reading between the lines, we can see the truth of the situation. We ran down a full list of names, tried everybody who was available, came up with nothing, hit the bottom of the barrel and to a scraping sound decided, we better see if your man has ever read a book in his life. Well, I'm, Not I'm at all, Anton. We are, we, are bu- we are booked up until November. We have some cracking <laughs> other guests as well as yourself to do the Culture Club. But we are delighted. Of course, you're not going to be that giving us all driving music and stuff now, though, are you? No, 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 not at all. Would I, please? All right. The first thing we always ask all of the guests to do is to admit to the first single they ever remember buying. Do you have one? Oh, God, yeah. Mine was a mine was a classic, one that I think has has held its its musical merit, its artistic merit. In fact, I think later generations are only coming around to truly appreciate the genius that was the theme tune to the greatest American hero on set. Uh, hang on, final. you're you're overselling this a little bit, Anton. It's this is believe it or not. I'm uh, I think then brackets. Walking I'm on walking air. on air. <laughs> Correct. Which I had on seven inch single, which you sort of now have to. There was a period where you could explain to people that a seven inch single was like a a CD, only they scratched the music onto the front of it with a nail. Now you have to then explain what a CD is, that it was a disc that music used to come on. So way back in the day, there were vinyl singles and I had The Greatest American Hero. And I think the B side was a thing called money is the root of all evil which was truly terrible but that the theme tune to the greatest american hero was fabulous joey scarborough let's hear it Remind me of that TV program, Anton. Was this a guy with a funny cape as well? A sort of like an an ordinary Superman, so to speak. I will gladly remind you of that show, Matt. That was part of a golden age of Saturday afternoon TV, particularly if you were a a young boy, because I think for some reason, Hollywood and the big American networks decided that the, the market to sell to was young boys. So there was a plethora of TV shows aimed at them, me as as then was. But The Greatest American Hero was quite quirky and clever. It was about a man living in California, a bit of a nerdy, dorky type, who finds a superhero outfit kind of like Superman's. And when he puts it on, 
he gets superpowers. But because it had no instruction manual, he doesn't fully know how to use it. So he can fly, but he can't land. So he arrives everywhere by crashing through windows and smashing into hedges. And he can kind of... Like the way you drive. Essentially, more or less the same thing. You can see a lot of my personality rooted in this show, man. And if you want, he can he can telepath, but only if he squeezes a pillow around his head. So it had that kind of optimistic quirkiness to it, and it had a character who could fly. And that, for my you know, my formative years, all I wanted to do was be able to fly. So that wrapped it all up. And I have to say, that's the first time I've heard it in a long time. Oh, it's good. That is good. It is actually what a theme tune. But- what was the first CD? So if you're going to pass uh, singles that you can remember owning. The first CD that I had, I, I had two bought hand in hand because I got given a CD player and therefore I had to get CDs to feed it. One was Queen, The Works, and the other one was Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms, which again, I, I stand over. I think Brothers in Arms, because you, you know the line, the Christy Moore line, where on one of the albums, the crowd starts to sing along and he says, just not shagging Dire Straits you have up here and makes them be quiet so they listen. I think there's a bit of a bad Dire Straits backlash in the years since. I have to say, I think Brothers in Arms is a brilliant album. But the interesting thing about it when we're talking about vinyl and CD, Brothers in Arms was the first uh, release, the first album, where the CD version of it outsold the vinyl version of it. It was the, to quote Hunter Thompson, it was the high watermark that point where the wave broke and rolled back for vinyl. Okay. Favourite album, though, is one that was very much one from vinyl. Jackson Brown, Late for the Sky. Yeah. Oh, Jackson Brown. I get, I discovered Jackson Brown in the weirdest way. I w- tried to buy Eric Clapton's cocaine and I found not not the actual substance, the, the song cocaine. You didn't need um, to clarify that. We knew that <laughs> anyway. Okay. He, he went through a difficult period in the 70s, man. So I thought I had bought it. But what I had bought was, I think uh, cocaine is on running on empty, was uh, Jackson Brown's running on empty. And loved it. And based on that, bought Late for the Sky and bought bought The Pretender and bought into that whole set. Because Jackson Brown was in a a musical set in the late 70s that included Glenn Frey, The Eagles, Warren Zevon, uh, Bonnie Raitt, a little overlap to some extent with Emmylou Harris. Just a brilliant set of singer-songwriters. And I I thought, and still think, some of Jackson Brown's lyrics are without parallel. Let's hear a little bit of Fountain of Sorrow. i 
that had the lyrics you wanted to quote, I believe, Andrew. <laughs> I just love that line. I think looking through some photographs I found inside a drawer, I was taken by a photograph of you. There were one or two I know you would have liked a little more, but they didn't show your spirit quite as true. And he, his all of his songs are filled with lyrics like that. He has one, I think it's in The Pretender, that, or maybe it's in These Days, which is don't confront me with my failures. I have not forgotten them, which is I just think he's got gorgeous lines. And it, it got me into that whole set of singer songwriters. And I ended up seeing Warren Zevon. Now, Zevon is an interesting um, character. Zevon used to do a lot of stand in on the David Letterman show. His only big hit was Werewolves of London in, in uh, this side of the water. But he had a lot of sleeper songs um, and some very clever ones. I mean, ones like Carmelita. But anyway, I got to see him in the Olympia. And he had a cold and he was doing the kind of thing that you now see Ed Sheeran and Foy Vance do a lot where he plays on bass line, hit a pedal, record it, loop it, play his own rhythm line over it, record it, loop it, and then do his lead line while he sang, which at the time I'd never seen before and thought it was pretty cool. But he took a break during the singing and said to the crowd in the Olympia, God, I, I'm not able to shift this cold. I should go down to the 40 foot for a swim and see if it would clear my chest. And I thought fair play to him for knowing the local areas and lingo and all the rest. It turned out it was the early stages of the lung cancer that killed him. So it was the, oh. the last, yeah, the last tour that he had done and, and the last time that he played in Ireland. But he had a lovely line where, um, and sorry, Jackson Brown produced him, which is why I mentioned him. And Jackson Brown was a big supporter of his. But his last album was entitled The Answer to a Question Asked by David Letterman, who said, now that you're at this point where you know it's coming to an end, is there any insight that you have that the rest of us don't? And he paused for a while and he said, yeah. Enjoy every sandwich, <laughs> which was the title of the last album. We also asked you for favorite band or singer, and you were going to go for Jackson Brown, but then decided to go for someone who died last year, John Prine. Why have you picked John Prine? Yeah, John Prine died last year of, of COVID, which is is a shame because he, he he's one of those where you sort of wish, God, I wish I'd, I'd you know I'd, I'd discovered him like he was out there just begging for me to discover him. But he's, he lived in Ireland for a long time, had big connections in Ireland, played in Ireland a lot, so there would have been a scope to see him live. Why do I like him so much? Uh, again, the lyrics. Uh, his, his big hit, of course, is Angel from Montgomery, the one that he's most associated with. But this, he wrote that when he was in, I think, his early 20s, late 30s. And it's a song written from the perspective of a late middle-aged housewife trapped in a house in a marriage that she hates. And it's such an odd perspective for a young man to take, and it's such a moving song. Likewise, he has a song called Sam Stone, which is about a, a man coming back from war who ends up addicted to morphine. And the, 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 the chorus is, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. He just has every, or not every, but most of his songs are these gorgeous little, often quite sad vignettes, and he's wonderful. Let's hear a little bit of Angel from Montgomery. I am an old woman Named after my mother My old man is another Child that's grown
John Prine there. You mentioned Warren Zevon in the Olympia as a great gig, but what would you nominate as the best gig you've ever attended? By the way, before I do that, can I apologise to, to whoever has, has decided to, to sit through all of this 1970s awfulness because it's the funniest experience. Yeah, Being a guest, you sit and think, God, this is great music. They should play more of this stuff on the radio. And then you realise, oh, yeah, that's because it's entirely geared towards my tastes, which I think I may be the only one to have. So apologies to everybody who's suffering. The best gig... I think one of the, the I, I give you the two best gigs that I, I was ever at because they were so radically different. One was Peter Gabriel in The Point. And Peter Gabriel, when he left Genesis, he had two albums, one called Soul, one called Us, which were huge sort of um, solo successes. And he had the the big hits like um, Sledgehammer, which I think was on Soul, but I can't remember. Um, it was. But there were a load, was it? There were a load of yes. really other good songs on both albums that didn't quite make the charts, but they, they were they were super full albums because you will remember Matt there used to be a time when you bought music and sat through the 45 minutes and sat through it in a certain order so when one uh, song so, ends, so was one of the great albums his duet Kate Bush Don't Give Up is one of the great songs as well absolutely superb and the duets across because there's a series of duets on, on both of those albums but if I remember rightly and I'm always reluctant to say things like this because I may have constructed the memory but I'm 99% sure it happened I think Sinead O'Connor took the female parts in that gig in the point and he was on form and she was on form and there was huge production so he, he has one song called talk to me and he began it in a phone box walks out of the phone box with the, the cable extending behind him and then is dragged down 40 feet of the stage back into the box by the cable just really clever stuff like that absolutely stunning gig and his voice and Sinead O'Connor's voice together yeah, almost impossible to beat the other one that that was I think as the kids say, off the hizuk was the prodigy in Semple Stadium, which was phenomenal. The this was it wasn't what was the yoke that you it wasn't the, the, the regular Fela. Yeah, it wasn't Fela. It was the year they did a sort of a quasi Fela, I think, the year after the, the last of them. Um it was mid to late nineties. The Prodigy were the headliner. It was a gorgeous, hot summer evening. I had the exact same car then that I have now. And I don't mean the same model. I mean the actual same car, which is a, a big old Merc. So on the way down to the um, stadium, I told the people who were with me to get in the back. And I put on a shirt and tie. And when we got to the guard, the barrier outside Central Stadium, <laughs> I said, just dropping off guests for the promoters. And they waved <laughs> us into the VIP car park. So we were parked in beside the Prodigy's Cadillac and got access to the VIP, stayed backstage for most of it. And then when the Prodigy hit and like, I just remember smack my bitch up and the entire crowd going ape. It was fabulous. I don't remember much after that, but that bit was definitely very good. We don't have the Prodigy from Thurlis. We do have them live at the Phoenix <laughs> Festival in 1996. <laughs>
the prodigy there. Just before we finish music, Anton Savage, a lot of 1970s folk type stuff, but I thought you were into gangster rap. Yeah, it, it, well, like there with the project, I was going to say, can you, can you see the pattern emerging? Every song, a delicate vignette about suffering and, and melancholy <laughs> in the American Midwest. Um, yeah, I, I still wish I could um, had the opportunity to be able to say sorry to my father for what I made him listen to when he'd be giving me lifts places because I got in on what I think was the ground floor of, of gangster rap back when Tupac Shakur was with the Digital Underground and their, their seminal album, Sex Packets, which if you've ever had to sit through it, Matt, is a difficult experience. But I was absolutely committed to the digital, digital underground, which led me to be a big Tupac fan, which then a big Dr. Dre fan, Ice Cube. Um, I, I still don't know how my dad put up with um, listening to NWA's Straight Outta Compton and the album <laughs> which followed it, which shan't be named on the drive to school. But yeah, every now and then when John Prine gets a little too melancholic and you want to blow the dust off, it, it's hard to beat Dre and Snoop. All right, we need to take a break. And when we come back for the rest of Anton Savage and the Culture Club, we're going to find out what movie makes him cry like a baby every time. <laughs> Welcome back to the Culture Club here on The Last Word of Today FM. Anton Savage is with us today. So I teed it up. What is the movie that makes you cry like a baby every time? I, I, I may struggle to even say the title without crying, Matt. Field of Dreams. Okay. For those who aren't familiar with that 1989 movie with Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones, what is it? It's the story of a farmer in who has a, a cornfield in Iowa and the corn is not coming in well. The banks are about to foreclose on, he, his, on him and his wife and his little girl and things are getting extremely tough. He may have to sell the farm and one day he thinks he hears a voice in the corn and he begins to listen to what the voice in the corn is saying and then he begins to think that he's seeing people. And then what he decides he will do is he will bulldoze the corn and make a baseball diamond, which, of course, the corn is his cash crop. So by making the baseball diamond, he's now making a, a bizarre and crazy decision that will further bankrupt the family. But he feels compelled to do it. And when he does this in the night, only visible to him, baseball players walk out of the corn and play baseball and then walk back into the corn at night. Now, this, if you haven't seen it, Sounds like the schlockiest thing in the world. It is honey with sugar poured on top of it and then some saccharin. I accept all of that. It's still desperately touching. So he gradually follows the voices and um, finds James Earl Jones, uh, who becomes an almost quasi spirit guide, though he's alive. And the end result, I won't give it away because there's no way to tell the, the kicker story at the end without the world's biggest spoiler. But... It is a moment of rapprochement that involves things that he never got to do, relationships that he never got to complete. It involves second chances and it involves a father-son relationship. Oh, God, I'm, I'm well enough explaining. <laughs> <laughs> nah. Let's anyway. hear a bit of it. Let's hear a bit of it. <laughs> Ray, when the bank opens in the morning, they'll foreclose. People will come, Ray. You're broke, Ray. You sell now or you lose everything. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has ruled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field 
This game is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Ray, you will lose everything. You will be evicted. Build it and they will come, huh? If you build it, they will come, Matt. That's right. <laughs> and you have another movie briefly that also makes you cry. What is it about you, Anton? <laughs> well, this one, I, the way I came across this one was the funniest thing. It was it was a good 20-something years ago and I was in a flat. It was about two o'clock in the morning. And do you remember the way when there was only five channels, you, whatever was on on the remaining two that were on air, you watched. And for some reason, they were playing this uh, cartoon which is called The Iron Giant, which is a remake of a Ted Hughes um, short story or, or a story called The Iron Man. And it's about a boy who ends up in a relationship with a killer robot. That's, again, without spoilers, there's no better way to tell it. The voice of the robot, this sounds even worse the more I go on, is Vin Diesel. But at the end of it, when <laughs> this, this cartoon finished after about 25, 30 minutes of being on, the three of us, 25-year-old guys sitting in a flat on our own, all of us refusing to make eye contact because all three had tears streaming down their faces. So it's another one of those where I, I challenge anybody to sit through it and not weep like a baby. Okay. Um, you mentioned your dad, Tom, who was a great formative influence for you earlier, but your mother, Terry, as well, would be someone who is a voracious reader of books. So I'd imagine you had an enormous amount of books to pick from and then your own choices as well. You have picked for fiction, one of my favorites as well from many years ago, John Irving's Cider House Rules. Oh, yeah. And and you're right. I mean, first of all, the, it's it's a bit like being a butcher's dog when when you're when you grow up with Terry, the the castaways are phenomenal she she goes through books usually at a rate of about eight to ten a week and then she'll pick the good ones and give them to you so it's like literally having your own recommendation service and gives you unlimited access to books um yes john irving i think that the two john irving books i i think the sorry obviously he had three the hotel new hampshire the world according to garp on this one yeah, I'd give you Garp on this one. I think the Cider House Rules and Garp are phenomenal. I, again, I think when you look at the relationships, John Irving manages to balance the good and the bad, the nuance, the light and the dark. So the fact that his lead character in the Cider House Rules, or probably his secondary character in the Cider House Rules, is a man of such gentle kindness. He, he, puts, he, he runs an orphanage, and as the boys go to bed every night, he stands at the door and he says, Good night, you princes of Maine, you kings of New England, and says this every night declares his love for them every night and during the day he provides abortions at a time when abortions are seen as both criminal, dangerous, immoral, all the rest of it. Likewise, you have the lead character, the, the narrator's voice, dealing with fairly intense lust and dealing as well with the sudden realisation of the privilege it is to be white at that time and what it's like to not be white at that time. So I, th I think it's a, it's a stunning piece of work. And likewise, as a second, Garp is up there. Garp has to let's be hear, there. Let's hear an extract from the audiobook of John Irving's Cider House Rules. Dr. Wilbur Larch was the self-appointed historian of the town. According to Dr. Larch, the logging camp called Clouds became St. Clouds only because of the fervent backwoods Catholic instinct to put a saint before so many things, as if to grant those things a grace they could never quite acquire naturally. 
The logging camp remained St. Cloud's for nearly half a century before the apostrophe was inserted, probably by someone who was unaware of the camp's origin. But by the time it became St. Cloud's, with an apostrophe, it was more of a mill town than a logging camp. The forest for miles around was cleared, instead of logs jamming the river, and the rough camp full of men lamed and crippled by falling from trees or by trees falling on them, one saw the high, orderly stacks of fresh-cut boards drying out in the hazy sun. Overall lay a silty sawdust, occasionally too fine to see, but ever-present in the sneezes and wheezes of the town, and the town's perpetually itching noses, and in its rasping lungs. It was also turned into a wonderful movie. I often wonder about books been turned into movies. This was Toby Maguire, Charlize Theron, Michael Caine. It was a terrific movie. You had one other novel you were going to offer us though as well, Anton, please. Yeah, it's it's one I only read it re- relatively recently in the, in the last five or ten years. But um, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which I think is is a, a phenomenal piece of work. It's it's about uh, an immigrant who arrives into America and ends up working in the meatpacking factories of Chicago. And Upton wrote it effectively as a treatise against uh, against the worst of capitalism, unbridled, and uh, a, a treatise in support of unionization and in support of socialism. And when you see the exploitation and the fairly accurate depiction, little bit um, uh, hyperbo- hyperbolic, but only a little, the depiction of the experience of the downtrodden American, the new American uh, at the turn of the last century. But what's interesting is, because it was set in the meatpacking plants in Chicago, the depiction of what happened in those plants had a completely counter-intuitive uh, response from the public, which was discussed at the standards in the meat industry. And it became one of the driving forces that you got the FDA and you got all of the, the meat grading and qualification in the States. So it created a revolution in food safety, but never the revolution in society that uh, Upton Sinclair would have aimed for. Okay, and I really like the sound of that. And give us something non-fiction. Non-fiction, I'll give you two. Uh, the most recent one uh, was Factfulness by Hans Rosling, uh, a, a public health doctor, I think, from Sweden, who uh, spent time working in developing countries around the world. And it is called Factfulness because it is literally, a, okay, so you think you know how the world works? Let me give you some facts. And it challenged every assumption that I had about the distribution of wealth, about richness and poorness, about uh, global health, about population growth. And it's one of those books where he, he tends to pose a question every chapter. You answer it in your head and then realize, oh, I was completely wrong. And I've been dining out on that assumption for the last 20 years. Very, very good. And the other one is anything by Stephen Ambrose. Ambrose is the guy who wrote uh, Band of Brothers, D-Day. He wrote the um, history of uh, what do we call the 101st Airborne, which is the Band of Brothers book. He, he does military history. But you know the way when you sit down to Anthony Beaver, you kind of have to stretch before you start. Stephen <laughs> Ambrose, you can read on the beach and still get the accurate history. Okay, we're running short on time. Uh, you don't have a podcast for us. Why not? I've yet to find one. I, it's like people say, I like to listen to NPR. And I think, yes, I'd like to edit NPR because there's 10 interesting minutes in every 40 minutes of programming. The same I find with podcasts. It's like the fact that you can do long form doesn't mean you should. Profound and boring are not of necessity synonymous. So, Oh, I'm, I'm so glad to hear any. you say that. <laughs> so glad to hear you say that. The amount of podcasts I could do with serious amount of editing. Oh, okay. 
Totally. We started with music and a theme song from a TV show. So you told us about some of the things you watched as a kid. Finish off for us with the best television you'd recommend from having watched as an adult. Uh, best TV as an adult. Well, there's one currently that I'm I'm finding really good. The, the Netflix 9-11 documentary. It's one of those things. It's my first personal experience of seeing an event I lived through, through the lens of history. Because when you're in the middle of it, you are so surrounded by chaff and noise that you can often miss the bits that are significant and that are rubicons in the movement of an issue. The, the documentary on 9-11 gives you just those bits strung end to end. And it's a totally different look at it. And I found it riveting and very, uh, very moving because you forget the horror associated not just with the day, but with the response to the day. So that one, uh, uh, that, I, I'd suggest if anybody is is bored, and the one that the only show that I will rewatch and that I will happily rewatch again and again, and damn it, now that I mention it, I must rewatch it again soon from start to finish. The Sopranos never saw anything as good ever. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we didn't get to uh, plays and other things, but we've run out of time. Anton Savage, as ever, great to have you with us here on The Last Word of Today FM, and thank you very much for doing The Culture Club for us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.